most fondest memories probably was around two and a half years old. My mother had just had my little brother Brandon. He was had just been born, and we were living over in Hendersonville. My dad he he wanted to take me hunting, and so I remember we got a shotgun and we went out went for the hunt, and Dad took the the gun and put it on his shoulder and placed me you know right there with the barrel and everything and we found us a rabbit and uh, we killed it and you know it might be hard for some of you to believe that I can remember that far back but for some reason I'm able to I remember being really excited and dad said you know let's take the rabbit and get it all prepped and fixed and I remember we put it in the our freezer in our little house and I was just kind of the person who wanted to figure things out and so dad was I don't know if he was at work or he was gone and mom was we lived in like a split level home and I still remember seeing the stairs going into the hallway and we had this little kitchen with like two or three of those little 1970s plastic chairs that were sitting around a little tiny table and I still see the you know the the uh, stove and everything and I decided that I was going to cook that rabbit myself and so I got it out of the freezer, poured about, I guess, about an inch of water in one of those stainless steel pots. I don't know if you know about the Lifetime brand, but I think we had Lifetime pots then. And it was like one of those, I don't know, um, I don't know what you'd call it, like a 10-quart pot or something like that, a big metal stainless pot. And I put it on the back of the stove, set the burner probably like at 4 or 5, and I uh, took that frozen rabbit and threw it into that pot and like I said, about an inch of water. And I let it sit there and cook. Um, while I was waiting on it to cook, I just making sure nobody's watching me. And eventually the meat got warm enough and it wasn't fleshy anymore and it was like the way a chicken would look. And I got it out, threw that rabbit down on a plate and started started to eat it and I, I tell you I was really frust- quite frustrated with it because we had shot it with and I can still see the pellets in it from the shotgun because we shot it with a shotgun and the pellets had penetrated and broke and shattered the bones inside the rabbit they had rusted the metal had and it was still like all the shot was in it and I'm sitting there I was hungry and I'm like picking off the meat around the shot and and uh Ended up not getting very much meat out of it because of it, and and you know one thing that one thing that I love and I started to realize there at two and a half, and it's going to progress into being five years of age. It's going to be like my next big memory is I love to win, and I loved I love the challenge of the hunt and the challenge of the fight, and it was already just like in the blood. And that was a seminal moment for me. I'd take my dad's working boots and walk around in them. And it was that moment of just like, you know, I want to be a man. Next memory I have is actually taking dad's, uh, I don't know if y'all remember this, but it's like those old record, record players, but they were like in a wooden sort of box that was about, I don't know, five, four or five feet high. And it was probably, mm, let's say 48 inches to four feet wide. And you could flip up a, like a panel on the top and down in it was a record and I remember being intrigued with how that little tip on that uh, device could cause that record to play so I took that I took the screws out of that thing and took the panel apart and started like trying to figure out how record players worked and 
I don't think I put it back together as successfully as I took it apart. But anyways, that was another thing I was real intrigued with uh, components and stuff like that. And I guess that was around four years old. The next big memory, though, and it's, you know, as I enter into today's podcast uh, episode was when we got those uh, big wheels. And I don't know if y'all had those back in the, I guess it was the early 81, 80s. And the big wheel was like this little tricycle type bike that came out with two smaller wheels on the back with a little handle. And yeah, your hands were kind of like higher out and you had this big wheel in the front and you had pedals around the big wheel. And uh, you had like a right hand braking plastic thing that could pull up. And if you could get like on a, like a really fast uh, little area, like a sidewalk or something. So there I am, Colorado Springs, Colorado. My dad is in Bible college with mom. She's in like a pedagogy school or something for uh, music. And I'm like flying around there in the apartment complex we lived in. And I just, I thought, I mean, I could just like see my own self with goggles on and like a scarf and I was going to take the world to racing. And I love to go fast and I love the idea of winning. And it wasn't too long after that that I would get a bicycle on Christmas. I was into Dukes of Hazard. It was just, you know, all boy that we loved going fast. Going fast was my thing. And so when dad took me down and I saw the tarmac and saw the space shuttle sitting out on the tarmac in Colorado Springs, not far off the Air Force Academy, uh, I just was just completely mesmerized. I have been since that day to this day, mesmerized by aeronautics, going fast, race cars, um, whatever it means to win. And so... That kind of has been sitting there all along, and when the Lord told told us to go to Saluda and live on that mountain and said, I'm going to put you through my training like your forefathers went through, and you know, you can listen to those early on podcasts, I was really frustrated because uh, everything that I ever thought I would do in regards to aviation, you know, jet aircraft, hopefully would have a race car that was in my background I really wanted to at least race or do something or at least have my own personal sports car that I could I'd had some cars like that and I would I'd race motorcycles and things like that but I just wanted to go fast I wanted to accelerate and I I get up with the Lord and he gives me this model there's another one of the episodes that I deal with this but the model that I end up getting for acceleration comes out of and I explain this. It comes out of like a pre-Freudian drive mentality, and Freud had basically said that there's a death drive and a life drive, and that you know basically the idea is how do I win, and how do you succeed in life? Freud said everybody has a proclivity before their brains even informed, even at the level of their nucleus accumbens or amygdala or their lateral hypothalamus there was a drive that was inside of man and you could choose either death or life to enter into your drive and so uh, by the time we've been on that mountain for about six months I started to come to realize that um, well the self-help stuff and choose your own life and the Nietzsche Nietzsche type you know do whatever makes you happy fulfill your own life biologically just make yourself happy, please yourself all the time. I started, I was realizing that that isn't the way you win. 
But I also was realizing the way you win isn't like want to end your life. I don't like myself. I hate myself. My life has no meaning and purpose. And I realized that that's not the way you win either. And then I really started to see this mechanism enter into my understanding as I read God's word. And Jesus had give us a way to win. And Jesus said, you know, if you lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you will find it. And so I, I decided I'm going to engage in that mechanism because somebody, people may not realize this about me personally, but I deeply want to win. You know, I deeply, I'm not someone who likes to lose, but if there is a way to win and accelerate and go faster, and there's a way to speed up human invo- human development and grow that will bring out a win, you know, a win and then a winning team, a winning family, a winning team, a winning, we're going to win and Jesus has told us how to do it, then I'm like, okay, so I remember I was sitting in my living room and I was like, you know, if I don't accelerate, uh, even if I have to internalize this acceleration, if if we don't accelerate, I can't do this thing because it would be like purposefulness, whatever that word is, and meaninglessness to not win. (laughs) So I remember I was like, okay, Lord, if you got to kill the old man to get the new man out, then hey, don't poke me with a bunch of like forks and stuff and like die a slow death. Do this thing right now, like kill the old man. And so Jesus is, you know, he's not like punishing us. He's curing us. And uh, come to find out, I need a really big cure. (laughs) Some of us are more messed up than others. And and, uh, I started finding out that I had a lot of struggles. I'm, you know, by nature, a warrior and was learning to be a lover. Uh, you know, that book, Father by God, is such a good book because he goes through uh, masculine development and you go from boyhood to cowboy and, and then you go to from cowboy to warrior, then you go to lover, then you go to king, and then you go to sage. And I'm like, man, whatever it takes. You know, I was in a warrior motif with the F-15 Strike Eagle and I had to translate all that into internal human development and engage the lose your life for Jesus' sake in the gospel, and you will find it. Why? Because I want to win. And I have to admit that, and I believe that God made us that way as people. He didn't make us just to throw our lives away through suicide and kill yourself and all that nonsense, and you know that you, you don't matter and your life doesn't matter, or just go like do the best you can and satiate yourself on whatever pleasures you have, like all the different things that are offered out there to try to bring pleasure. And then it can't be just like self-denial, and I'm just going to deny myself just for the sake of denying myself. I'm not doing that either. So the point is is that winning is at the basis of this, and and that happened for the Lord. I mean, don't, don't get the Lord wrong and, and see Him wrongly because Jesus, you know, He's has the same mentality you know he counted it not robbery to be equal with god but he came in the form of a servant and the likeness of man he put off his glory because he had a mission he's coming to earth with and because of that because he laid his life down it says in philippians that the word exalted him to sit right next to him on a throne i mean jesus right now is sitting on a throne and uh in glory and he's awesome he's the best king he's amazing and he did all this because the father and him and holy spirit wanted an expanded family but jesus won 
And Jesus is victorious. And he's a winner. Uh, he's gained the victory. You know, it says he looked for the joy that was set before him. He despised the shame. He didn't like what was going on in his life, but he did it because he loves us. And I just want to make that really clear. Jesus is a winner. Jesus is not some kind of loser. And he won, but he did it the way of the Father. And so I'm a big fan of winning. And I want to just say that as we enter into this episode today, because what happens is all this formula, formula one, this whole formula entails comes up to a place uh, for me. I'm sitting in front of Barnes and Noble. Things will just come to me out of nowhere. And I mean, I've had whole words and phrases and things like that. A lot of this that we're doing in this is just completely being out of relationship with the Father. And I, I will just hear something from him. I'll hear a word from him or some idea. And I have to go look it up myself because I don't hardly understand where he's coming from. But if you wait before the Lord, he'll talk to you and he'll encounter your heart. And it's really amazing. But, you know, you've got to be in this pattern of faith believing that he is and he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him so it's really cool to hang out with the father and he does some of the really amazing things with us well i i'm sitting there and i get this notion that about mercedes and like i'm i'm thinking you know i'm thinking about racing i'm thinking about mercedes and i'm thinking about you know like uh, formula one I'm going to go through a little bit of history with Formula One as it relates today and then build this thing out because I, this is a really neat podcast to me because God being my helper and I pray he's going to give me a race car or something I can go fast in. Henry and I are going to go riding everywhere and the boys. Uh, I don't know if the girls will want to hang out with us, but we're going to do this thing. <laughs> my boy Leander, he'll say, hey, Dad, let's do this thing, you know, and it's just the love of the race that's in there. Anyways, Formula One automobile racing has its uh, got its roots in uh, the Euro- European Grand Prix Championship of the 1920s and 30s. And though the foundation of the modern Formula One began in, in 46 uh, under the FIA, which brought in a standardization of rules, it was followed by World Championship of Drivers in the 1950s. Now, I don't know what you know or your background with the Grand Prix, but the Grand Prix motor racing was a form of motorsport competition, and it went all the way back into France as early as 1894. It evolved into simple road races from one town to the next to endurance tests for car and driver. The innovation and the drive of competition saw speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour, just think of that, like 160 kilometers an hour. For those of you that are listening to this that are over in European nations, and like some of you that have been on Audubon, I have been on Audubon, and it is amazing because it's legal to go fast. And just a little side note, I was, I think I got a little Ford Opal car up to about 240 kilometers an hour. And let me just say, that was just exhilarating and amazing until I got my doors blown off by... I think it was a BMW 8 Series that made me look like I was standing still. He, might, he had to have been going at least 190 to 210 miles per hour. But, oh, I just, I was like, I wish I could switch cars right now. 
needless to say, so here they are back then getting up to 100 miles per hour, which is about 160 clicks is how you say it. But these early races, the races took place on open roads, so they had a lot of accidents and deaths, uh, both to drivers and spectators. Let me just put this out there. You know, I think personally, if someone, and I know that, you know, Formula One and NASCAR, and they have all these rules, and they, but I'm like, man, go out there and let the best man win with the best car and quit putting some irregulations on it. And if they die, they die. You know, that's just my personal opinion. That aside, the Grand Prix motor racing eventually evolved into what's called formula racing. And uh, one can regard Formula One as its direct descendant. Each event of the Formula One World Championship is still called a Grand Prix. Formula One is also referred to as Grand Prix racing. Motor racing, which was started in France, was because of the enthusiasm which was uh, being made by the French public that was embracing the motor car. Manufacturers were enthusiastic due to the possibility of using motor racing to shop, to make window dressing for their shops so that people would buy their cars. Businessmen were like, hey, if we get our car out front and race it in front of everybody, all these guys that are working every day, they're going to go buy our product. And maybe they might not be a race car driver, but they're going to think they are when they get in their car, no matter if it goes that fast or not. Because that's just how we are as men. So the first motoring contest took place on July 22, 1894. It was organized by a Paris newspaper, the La Petite uh, Journal. And the Paris Rowan Rally was uh, 78 miles. And so the average speed then would take about 6 hours, 48 minutes at an average speed of about 12 miles per hour. <laughs> so this is it really gets started out really uh, sort of weak and... And so Grand Prix kind of takes off there early and before the uh, turn of the century. And so, you know, they started to develop race courses and cars around that. And just like anything there, you know, you want to win and the technology's improving. And so uh, it grows. Now, it grows into uh, this Formula One racing that gets, let's just move up into these, into the... Uh, 1950s and 1960s and you know, like well a little bit into uh, pre-World War II and so a lot of different manufacturers come in and the particular one that I'm wanting to get into this uh, in, th- in this episode is is Mercedes because what happens is um, and I'm not going to give a whole background on Mercedes and Formula One but which is absolutely amazing I'm sitting there in my car, Barnes & Noble. I'm like just dreaming of racing. I, I'm like, what am I doing trying to be a pastor <laughs> when I should be out racing a car right now? And I think I would be really good at it. What's really funny is our at our house, we live like a mile off road. And then we have like curbs that you have to climb out of the mountain with. And I got to tell you how many times my wife like holds on with white knuckle holding on with all her might while I put our vehicle through the points. And thankfully, I have a vehicle now. It's both has a sport function uh, where the suspension will actually brace itself. It has like an air suspension. So if I take a turn real hard, the car will level out so I can really put it in. But it's like an off-road vehicle too. So I can switch the suspension and I can bounce up and down off-road, then go into like a chicane climbing out of Saluda as fast as I possibly can. 
with six kids and a wife, you know. <laughs> so, but anyways, <laughs> you know, my wife's like, do you really have to do that? And I think that love is not rude. And I really think you're being rude to me right now. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll back off. But I was like, honey, I didn't even realize that I was even doing anything. I thought we were just kind of taking it easy. And she's just like, no, you've got to slow down, Carol. And so I've got to find a way to have an outlet to get this out. So back to Formula One and Mercedes. So I type in, as we all do with the Google, I type in in Google, uh, you know, Mercedes and Formula One. And and when I do, uh, up comes these two drivers. One of them's name is Nico Rosberg, and the other one is Lewis Hamilton. And... At this point, when I bring this up, the Rosberg and Hamilton were both driving from Mercedes, and they had just started their coming into uh, the Formula One season. Lewis Hamilton had been picked up by Mercedes. And so I believe I'm in about 2013 at this point. And what's interesting with this is the Lord speaks something to me, and he, he says, um, if Lewis Hamilton wins this year, your ministry is successful. <laughs> you know, it's really kind of odd the way Holy Spirit talks to you, because I'm like, my ministry is successful. I think we, at this point, we're meeting in the Skyland Fire Department. There's a few people there um, trying to figure out what's going on in life, and uh trying to be faithful to the Lord and do what he wants me to and desiring to really be out there on a track somewhere doing or in an airplane, you know, a jet preferably, uh, or just doing something that goes really fast and I want to win. And so he's like, if you're successful, you, your minister, Lewis Hamilton will win this year in the world uh, championship for formula one. And now there's a lot of other drivers that, you know, drive other manufacturers like McLaren is one of them. And, so Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg are both Mercedes drivers. So there's no real promise, literally, that Mercedes is going to win, much less Lewis Hamilton or, or Nico Rosberg, because you got all these different, like Ferrari and other companies that are um, promoting their, their driver and their car. And so uh, I thought, wow, what an interesting thing to say to me. Now, for me to help you out with this, I've got to give you just a little bit of background, because about my family history and one of my good friends. First of all, I have a, a background where we don't know who my dad's dad is. He was named Moffat by a man by the name of Earl Moffat, who was his mother's husband. And she had told my dad that uh, Earl Moffat was his dad, and so my dad, you know, believed his mom, of course, for all these years because Earl had died when he was. Well, he's going to find out when he goes to visit Earl's grave that Earl died before Dad was even conceived, and of course, Dad, being very upset, goes to his mom. I think he was around somewhere in his before his early twenties, or maybe right at the time change over from nineteen to his early twenties. Goes back to his mom said, why have you lied to me all these years? I don't know who my, my dad is. And so she tells him another man's name. Well, um, dad just has spent all these years trying to figure out who his dad is. And uh, it's been very troubling for him and hard because, you know, if, you, if any of you have ever suffered from fatherlessness, 
or not knowing who your father is, it's, it can be extremely painful because you don't have that presence there in your life to, to guide you and develop you. And, and for young men, this is a really big issue. You know, for all, for all young men and men that have lived, dad, your dad is, and I'm not saying it's not that way for ladies, but uh, young ladies can be developed by their mothers, but men, men develop men a lot and we need our mothers and I value my mother and I value my wife and the other mother figures in my life greatly but when it comes to men we really we have a Y chromosome and no one else has that but a man and so there's parts of our masculinity and you have to be developed by other men in that Y chromosome and you need uh, mentors father figures uh, other men to stand around you and develop you. And so my dad had largely missed that as a child and it's left a big, just gaping hole inside of him. So his desire to find his dad has been, it's been fraught with a lot of pain. And uh, I have a lot of tenderness in my heart for my dad over that. And as is the subject in the mission of this ministry, you know, to turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the children to their father. And so dad's been on this journey of finding his dad. Dad had an older brother. We had two older brothers. One, his name was Spalding Allison, and the other one was Jim Moffat. Now, Jim Moffat, he was Earl Moffat's son. And Spalding Allison, uh, who was dad's oldest brother, before he passed away, he lived in Mills River over here in North Carolina. Dad went to him and uh, talked to him because uh, and asked Spalding, who if he could help dad out and dad could have to tell you the story but about who his dad is well Spalding told him he said Carol my dad's name's Carol Carol also he said Carol your your dad is uh Charles Spurgeon Hamilton and just just tells him right out you know that's who your dad is and uh dad ended up having a number of men you know that would come along and tell him the same thing now the thing is, was about Charles Spurgeon, who you know, lived in Hendersonville, not far from Rose Street, where Dad's mother, who was uh, uh, Mayo Allison Moffat, where she was living. Charles Spurgeon passed away about it. Well, Dad would have been about a year and a half old by the time he passed away. So Dad got to speak to some of the Hamilton family, and one of the men said that he had overheard in a back room one day that uh, Charles Spurgeon had had twins. Now, my dad is a twin. His twin sister is, her name is Carolyn and uh, McCoy. And he had overheard someone saying what a young boy was not supposed to hear, but Charles Spurgeon Hamilton had had twins, and he believed that that was his dad. Now, we have pictures of Charles Spurgeon Hamilton, and he looks a lot like my brother, Brandon, and his family. They, they favor, extensively favor uh, my dad. Well, I had, uh, during this time of, of waiting for, you know, my own side of it, like, am I Hamilton or not, or am I uh, Moffat? I had asked the Lord one day, I said, you know, Lord, if I'm Hamilton, and would you show me that? And I kid you not, I asked the question, and uh, I didn't press anything, but I think I had my phone or an iPad open in front of me, and up pops on the iPad like a ad, and it says, Hamilton, watch interstellar and um and i i mean it happened within a few seconds of me saying that to the lord interstellar is going to be a movie that's going to come out in 2014 and they were running the this was before it came out and it was in the same time frame as looking at this formula one 
And again, Hamilton Watch is actually a watch manufacturer, and Hamilton Watch figures prominently in the movie Interstellar. And I don't know if you've seen Interstellar, but it is a, I really enjoyed it a lot, but it's a phenomenal story about a guy who's an astronaut engineer, and they're, they're going to have to leave the Earth, and, and his relationship with his uh, children, and then uh, how that they're, uh, they're going to have to go and plant uh, in different worlds because our world has uh, become clouded with dust and the atmosphere is shifting and we can't live here on this planet anymore. And that's just a real short on that movie. And I'll put up a link on these points that I'm making so that you can go in and look at it yourself. But, man, when Hamilton Watch Interstellar came up on my iPad, I was like, huh. I just asked a question and I got an answer. And sometime later, also, like I had another situation happen where I'm just seeking the Lord about, you know, am I Hamilton or not? Because I'm, you know, Moffat and Kara had received a coach purse, I think I, or someone else had purchased it for her and it had tore up. And so she wanted to take it back to coach and see if they would replace it. And we go into coach and we're looking around and I don't know if you've ever been to coach, but you know, their purses are fairly uh, nice and also uh, pricey. So we go in there and look around and she, she has a very particular style as all of you ladies probably do. And sometimes that's worked out good for me. And sometimes not (laughs) because, uh, uh, you know, us guys don't really know how to dress most of the time. And maybe our wives are like trying to straighten us out and, um, I, you know, we have our own kind of taste, and our own kind of look, and she may have a whole different way that she wants you to be represented and the way that you're going to look around her because of all kinds of stereotypes and things. And I had no idea that a lady had four different styles that went within four different seasons. I mean, it's really complicated. And uh, it's like 16 different styles, and then you have to rotate them, and you can't wear the same thing. And it's really, really uh, complicated. <laughs> yeah, it'll blow your mind. So, so anyways, we went into coach and she's like, I don't like any of these purses. None of them. I said, honey, this is coach. This is supposed to be like one of those nice places. I think you probably should like one of them. Nope. Doesn't fit me. And so I'm a, a little bit bewildered and I don't really know what to do. And I guess she can go get a gift card or something. And maybe exchange or do something else. And I decided I was going to walk around into another section of the store and just kind of look at these little back areas and try to find something. And Kara had said, you know, she wanted like an olive green uh, handbag and like as a purse because she's, she's a, she's a warrior princess, you know? And so there's a part of her that's built for war and another part of her that's just straight up lover. And so I'm like, she wants to get, like a little bit more of a war motif going with her uh, her beautiful self. And so I go around the corner and I get into the men's handbag section and they're sitting on the shelf as this it looks like it looks like a female's purse, but I guess it's for a man, but it's green and it's like an olive green and and it's like $600 or something. $620 for this bag. But it's marked down like 50% off, and then they're running another coupon. And, and I brought her around there, and I said, do you like this? And she says, oh, that is just perfect. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I was like, okay. So I go up to the front, and um, I was trained to be a wheeler dealer by my mom and dad. And I went up to the front, and I said, is this what you advertise? Is it this price or whatever? And, 
Anyways, I end up getting the whole thing because they threw all these things in for like, I don't know, a little over $100. And I end up having to pay $11 or something above what she had already got the exchange on for with Coach. It was really nice of Coach to do that uh, and to back up their product. And I'm, Kara has to go out to uh, change Leander and I'm sitting there at the register and the it flashes up on the screen it says Hamilton bag. And now you have to understand something that's really important to understand with me and with probably you. But I was learning something from the Lord in the context of this Hamilton bag that many times we try to take someone and form them into our own image. We see someone and we think that we try to place a box around them. That sounds kind of rudimentary, but we have this this framework of understanding about people and and so we want to fit them into, uh, sort of categorize them and place them into something. And, and you know, the Lord was teaching me that people were meant to be free to be who they are, especially in Him. And I was sort of feeling that kind of pressure with Kara thinking, look, you got all these wonderful bags. Can't you just pick one? I mean, can't we just get one today so that you have a person? Let's go. But I needed to walk her in a place of liberation to be who she is as as a female and, and to bless her to be who, who she is. And I had restrained my tongue, even though I'm sitting there thinking sort of like, can't she be happy with something? And uh, she wasn't because it didn't represent her properly. You know, we have to be very mindful of this. And God's been speaking to me about uh, being very mindful with each other about this because we were each created particularly by the Lord and we shouldn't try to hem somebody in into our own idea. Because, you know, I want to be a race car a driver, fly jets. So I want someone to tell me, oh, you can't do that. You can't have a fast car. You can't do things like that. I've heard that my whole life. I'll be real honest with you. It's quite frustrating when somebody says that and they don't enjoy you for who you are. I'm not saying we should enjoy people in sin. I just mean that we have a design that God made us a particular way. And so anyways, I'm learning this and what about this, about my wife and, and our children and my friends, like liberate them into their design, find out who they are. Like go listen to the Chrysalis episode if you want to understand more of what I'm saying right here. Let's be liberated into, and also Genesis zero, listen to that one about where you find true and lasting meaning. So needless to say, I'm looking down, I'm just, flabbergasted I'm purchasing a Hamilton bag and my wife's agreement with who she is now matches with me and that was just fascinating to me that really who she is is as my covenant partner someone who I love deeply and one flesh with me is only agreeing with really who we are as a family uh, and so God was leading us closer and closer to, to that design. So here I am again with another Hamilton experience, and it's in the context of my wife as one flesh. I just delighted that day in her that she was willing to go go the line and toe the line on who she is, but who she is was very much who I am. And uh, that we were, it just brought a deeper sense of fidelity and love between us because uh, what an interesting story. Well, I said all that to say that I'm discovering this Hamilton aspect and and I'm going back now to Formula One and the Lord says, now, if Lewis Hamilton wins, your ministry's been successful. I've got this dear friend of mine, Josh Lewis, who really, since the MZ Hop inception, had just been like 
like, hey, Carol, I'm going to run with you. We're going to do this together. Uh, it's just a really big bud of mine, probably one of my closest friends. Uh, um, we just hung out together a lot, uh, lifted weights together. He comes from, you know, a different side of life than I did, but uh, we just got along like two peas in a pod. And and so here's Josh Lewis and Carol Moffitt, possibly Hamilton, and here's Lewis Hamilton. And the Lord said, if you two are successful, you will see in ministry, you will see Lewis Hamilton win. Well, I started to dig into this Lewis Hamilton, and uh, man, he, he's a, a black kid from uh, the UK. He's got this fantastic personality. He's, uh, you know, you can go online, he's all over the place. You know, he's helping kids. He's got like a little baby line. He flies his airplane all over the world. He's He's just a neat person, and like I said, I was looking a little bit deeper into him, and I find out his um, his middle name is Davidson, and I thought this is so profound, Lewis Davidson Hamilton, and uh, you know, and he's he's real public about his life, so he's getting these tattoos, and uh, you can look at him. I mean, he's got his tattoo right in the center of his back, and he, it's the cross, and then he's got this star tattoo that he gets on his chest and he's got a lion that's looking down at this star and he ends up getting this tattoo the same day there's this like stellar aspect of space and it's about the lion leo and i'm having an encounter with the lord while and he posts his new tattoo at the very same time and i'm like man this lewis hamilton guy you know he's he's just something else so well it's getting down to the races going on and for Lewis Hamilton win. And, and so I start like saying, you know, to the Lord, why, why does this matter to a ministry? And what, what is this world reality that's going on? Because, you know, here's another one of these podcast episodes that you're listening to. And it's another sort of worldwide event. Like you go listen to Mandela and beyond and you start to listen to some of these and you realize that there's something going on in each one of these episodes that are, they're international in scope and they matter on a major scale. And here we are again, now we're into racing and we're into Formula One and we're into something that is a world championship. And the Lord's saying, you know, if your ministry is being successful, uh, Lewis Lewis Davidson Hamilton will win in the Mercedes car. And I want to like enter into with you where this kind of picks up because his major opponent or the one who is actually in a position to sort of win against him and they're they're running in the poles neck and neck with each other as this starts to unpack itself is this guy by the name of Nico Rosberg. And Nico's daddy had been had race cars and and he's just this amazing race guy. And so I'm like, I started to kind of look into, you know, why are you saying this to me? And the Lord had, we have been going through something very interesting since 2011 in ministry, where we're going through these events in ministry where we keep being taken into the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I'll have an encounter with the Lord and one of those objective proof encounters where we'll be tested on each one of these churches. And I start to come into this understanding, and you're going to be able to get this in our phase O final frontier teaching. There'll be a teaching that will come out called 
seven facet overcomer. And I start to understand that there, these seven churches are, are placed for seven aspects of overcoming. And when the Lord initiates this Mercedes and Nico Rosberg versus Lewis Davidson Hamilton thing with me, he takes me into uh, one of the churches and is saying that if, if you're successful, you're going to win and be victorious against the enemy as it relates to uh, one of the seven churches. So in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, there was this heretical group called the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans were mentioned in Revelation 2, 6 and 15. And so they were known within the cities of Ephesus and Pergamum. And the church of Ephesus is commended for hating the work of the Nicolaitans, which it says the word speaking by Revelation by John's revelation, I also hate. And the church of Pergamos is rebuked, so thou hast also some worshiping in their midst to hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So I've got this forming in my mind at this time that we have Lewis, Davidson, Hamilton, and we're in the MZ Hopper, Melchizedek order, or the order of Melchizedek. And then there's this other system that's operating and Nico Rosberg is this this other opposing driver to Lewis Hamilton. And Nico's name, Nico, is the word for like Nike, but it's also the name that it means victory over. And so I'm kind of forming this in my mind that I've got this Nicolation versus the order of Melchizedek or the Melchizedek order. And they're going head to head. And this is what starts to, I start to understand that the words using an interpretation, having me interpret here and analyze this based off of scripture. Now, so you might ask who were the Nicolaitan? What was their doctrine? Well, again, what whoever they were, apparently Jesus loathed their doctrine and hated their deeds. So let's just delve into the subject today to see if we can ascertain the identity of this group. And what was their doctrine or what were their deeds that they were committing that elicited such a strong reaction from Jesus? Well, in Revelation 2, 6, Jesus told the church of Ephesus, but this thou hast in your favor, thou hast hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, Jesus was proud of the church of Ephesus for their hatred of the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hated. You know, I don't allow my kids to say hate to each other. I said, you can hate the devil, but I don't really like you to say you hate uh, your siblings or other people. We just don't allow that in our house because it's such a strong word. So if Jesus is using such strong language like this, I believe it's got to be for a reason. So it comes from the Greek word missio, which means to hate, to abhor, to find utterly repulsive. It describes a person who has a deep-seated animosity who is antagonistic to something he finds to be completely objectionable. He not only loathes that object, but rejects it entirely. This is not just a case of dislike, it's a case of actual hatred. The thing Jesus hated about them was their deeds. The word deeds is the Greek word erga, which means their works. However, the word is so all-encompassing that it pictures all the deeds and behavior of the Nicolaitans, including their actions, beliefs, conduct, and everything else connected to them. 
The name Nicolaitans is derived from the Greek word Nikolaos. It's a compound of the word Nikos and Laos. The word Nikos is the Greek word means to conquer or to subdue, or another translation says it's victory over. The word Laos is the Greek word for the people. It is also where we get the word laity. Now, when these two words are compounded into one, they form the name Nicholas, which literally means one who conquers and subdues the people. It seems to suggest that the Nicolaitans were somehow conquering and subduing the people. Arrhenius and Hippolytus, two leaders in the early church who recorded many of the events that occurred in the earliest recorded days of church history, said the Nicolaitans were the spiritual descendants of Nicholas of Antioch, who had been ordained as a deacon in Acts 6.5. That verse says, And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Permanius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. We know quite a lot of information about these men who were chosen to be the first deacon, whereas little is known of the others. And so you know about Stephen, you know about Philip, but as we go down, we hear about Nicholas, and I just want to break this out, that the fact that it says he was a proselyte of Antioch, the fact that he was a proselyte tells us that he was not born a Jew, but had converted from paganism to Judaism. Then he experienced a second conversion, this time turning from Judaism to Christianity. From this information, we can know facts about Nicholas of Antioch. That he came from paganism and had deep pagan roots, very much unlike the other six deacons who came from pure Hebrew line. Nicholas's pagan background meant that he had previously been immersed in the activities of the occult. He was not afraid of taking an opposing position, evidenced by his ability to change religions twice. He converted to Judaism, would have estranged him from his pagan family and friends. It would seem to indicate that he was not impressed or concerned about the opinions of other people. That he was a free thinker and very open to embracing new ideas and concepts. Judaism was very different from the pagan and occult world in which he had been raised. For him to shift from paganism to Judaism reveals that he was very liberal in his thinking. For most pagans were offended by Judaism, he was obviously not afraid to entertain and to embrace new ways. And... According to the writings of the early church leaders, Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise implying that total separation between Christianity and the practice of occult paganism was not essential. Early church records seem to say that it was apparent that Nicholas of Antioch was so immersed in occultism, Judaism, and Christianity that he had a stomach for it all. They had no problem intermingling these belief systems in various concoctions and saw no reason why believers couldn't continue to fellowship and still be immersed in black magic of the Roman Empire and its countless mystery cults. Occultism was a major force that warred against the early church. In Ephesus, the primary pagan religion was the worship of Diana, Artemis. There were many other forms of idolatry in Ephesus, but this was a primary object of occult worship in the city. The city of Pergamos, there were numerous dark and sinister forms of occultism, causing Pergamos to be one of the most wicked cities in the history of the ancient world. In both of these cities, believers were lambasted and persecuted fiercely by adherents of pagan religions, forced to contend with paganism on a level far beyond all the other cities. 
It's very hard for believers to live separately from the activities of paganism because paganism and its religions were the center of life in these cities. Slipping in and out of paganism would have been very easy for younger, weak believers to do since most of their families and friends were still pagans. A converted Gentile would have found it very difficult to stay away from pagan influence. It is significant that the deeds and doctrines of the Nicolaitans are only mentioned in connection with the churches in these two occultic and pagan cities. It seems that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was that it was all right to have one foot in both worlds, and that one needed not to be strict about separation from the world in order to be a Christian. This, in fact, was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that Jesus hated. It led to a weak version of Christianity that was without power and without conviction. It was a defeated, worldly type of Christianity. Nicholas's deep roots in paganism may have produced in him a tolerance for occultism and paganism. Growing up in a perverted spiritual environment may have caused him to view these belief systems as not so damaging or dangerous. The wrong perception would have resulted in a very liberal viewpoint that encouraged people to stay connected to the world. That is why what numerous Bible scholars believe about the Nicolaitans. The kind of teaching would result in nothing but total defeat for its followers. When believers allow sin and compromise to be in their lives, it drains away the power and the work of the cross, the power of the spirit that is resident in a believer's life. This is the reason the name Nicholas is so vital to this discussion. The evil fruit of Nicholas's doctrine encouraged worldly participation, leading people to indulge in sin and lowered a godly standard in which he literally conquered the people. God wants to make sure we understand the doctrine of Nicolaitans taught. Uh, he'll go on to say, like Balaam's actions are given as an example of this doctrine. He says, I have a few things against thee because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, commit fornication. So you have those people that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which I hate. When Balaam could not successfully cure the people of God, he used another method to destroy them. He seduced them into unbridled, sensual living by dangling the prostitutes of Moab before the men of Israel. Now, you need to know this about Moab because Moab means who's your daddy. And so what he's dangling before them when he's dealing with these prostitutes of Moab is he's dangling before them what fatherlessness. He's dangling before them a disconnect between the heart of the father and the children and the children and the father and bringing in a corrupt uh, ideology, left-based ideology, that is uh, to, to disconnect the patriarchs of their families from their children. So Israel will end up, Numbers 25, 1 through 3, will make an abode in Shittim, and the people begin to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they, the daughters of Moab, called the people, the men of Israel, unto the sacrifice of their gods, and the people, the men of Israel, did eat, and bowed down to their gods, and Israel joined himself with Baal Peor. Now, just as the men of Israel compromised themselves with the world and false religions, now the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was encouraging compromise. And as you well are aware, compromise with the world results in weakened and powerless form of Christianity. And so this... This is what's going on. The Lord's saying, hey, if your ministry is successful, if you're successful, you're washing out this doctrine, this Moabitist doctrine that was being uh, promulgated by 
Balak, excuse me, Balaam to Balak to put a stumbling block in front of Israel to bring in a powerless, weakened Christianity. And so here I am sitting in the car and all this is kind of feeding in on me. And uh, if you, if you, Lewis and Hamilton, who are sons of David, if you are successful, you will start, you will see, you will see Nico Rosberg, Nico being power over the laity, that which is actually bringing destruction through compromise, you will see, you will see Lewis Hamilton uh, win this year. So I, I can still remember, I believe it was on a Sunday and um, I was running, they were doing the final race and it got down to, in 2013, it got down to, uh, the points got down to such a place that it was either going to be Nico or Lewis Hamilton that wins. And it was at the, the Hungarian Grand Prix. Hamilton will win the race from an unexpected pole position, eventually crossing the line nearly 11 seconds uh, faster than the second place. And it was just that one race that he'll end up taking him to right to the end. And what ends up happening is he wins. And I, I remember I was just I, I was just sort of like overwhelmed because I was like, Lewis Hamilton just won the world title. And you had said, Lord, that we have been successful. You know, in defeating this spirit that is encroaching itself upon the church. And then, you know, what? What's if I was a betting man, in which I'm not, and what was really interesting was the next year he's going to win a second world title again. 2014, Lewis Hamilton wins. 2015, Lewis Hamilton wins. And then he goes on in 2016, he becomes runner-up to Nico Rosberg. 2017, he wins again. Lewis Hamilton wins again. Uh, 2018, he wins again. And uh, here we are into 2019, and it is he is expected to defend his world championship title in 2019 with his contract with Mercedes is supposed to last until 2020. And so we're looking at almost six wins. One of them he was runner-up to with uh, Nico Rosberg. And I was have been blessed to say, you know, that the Lord through this ministry – has been winning on a a uh, international level, and uh, there's a world championship, and that we that we find that that Jesus is the one who uh, he he's the one who wins. One thing, and I want to close with this, is that about the Lord is Jesus on a number of occasions it was called the Son of David, because Lewis's middle name is David's son, Lewis David's son Hamilton. And there's occasions in Scripture where Jesus has called this because I, I just want to proclaim the victory of our Lord. And I want to claim the victory of the Melchizedek order in the, in the end of the age that this new world order and Melchizedek order, even in the realm of as we're looking today and racing, that ultimately the Melchizedek order is going to win out. And this is a prophetic sign of the future uh, that's upon us. Like, for instance, in Matthew 1, one, it says a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Six times in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded people calling Jesus the son of David. There were two blind men who needed healing and addressed him this way. 
in Matthew 9, 27, Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus performed a miraculous healing. The crowd wondered if Jesus could be David's son. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Matthew twelve twenty three. A Canaanite woman who wanted her daughter healed used this title of Jesus. A Canaanite woman in Matthew fifteen twenty two from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. In Jericho, two men, blind men, called out to Jesus. Matthew twenty thirty, And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus passed by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus was called the son of David during the triumphal entry. In Matthew 21, 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And and, uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem called the city of David. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him Matthew 2 1 and 2 he had a messianic title the son of David was therefore a messianic title Jesus called this to the attention of the religious rulers what do you think about the Christ whose son is he the son of David they replied he said to them how is it then that this David speaking by the spirit calls him Lord for he says the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No no one could say a word in reply, and from that day no one dared to ask him any more question. Matthew twenty two, forty two through forty six. David was the was promised that one of his offspring would rule forever. Jesus was called the son of David while he was here on the earth. He was born in David's city, Bethlehem. The Gospel of Matthew records that various people on six different occasions acknowledged Jesus as the son of David. This is a messianic title. Jesus never denied that he was the son of David. In fact, on Palm Sunday, he received the praise and the worship of the people. I mean, Jesus is the global world champion. And I, as I'm closing out this episode, I want you to consider something. And I think hopefully this is profound for you. I want you to consider engaging Jesus's mechanism for winning. Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel, you'll find it. Jesus is a winner. He's not, he may have been a loser in man's eyes, but I mean, he's crucified as it appears to be a common criminal on a cross, but Jesus died. He was buried and he's resurrected and he's became an astronaut he ascended right to the Father, where he's seated right now, waiting in retention, Acts 3.21. Jesus is retained in the heavens until the restoration of all things, of which this episodes of these podcasts are given for his glory and his honor and his praise. But I call to attention Jesus's mechanism for winning, that maybe you today, by listening to this, would say, you know what, I'm going to engage in Jesus says, Formula One training. I'm going to engage the death drive, the death drive that leads to life. And you would pray with me 
you know, I, I have to do this frequently that I will re-engage today with the Formula One, the only formula that works, the one that says, I am going to give you my life, Lord, and I'm going to do what I do for your sake. That means I make you Lord of my life. Uh, for many of you, he may have saved you, but listen, he has to be Lord. And out of Lordship salvation would come a presentation of the gospel and that you would love your neighbor as yourself as you freely receive grace. And if you don't know the Lord, this would be an opportunity for you to say, you know what? I want to engage with a winner. I'm not, I don't want to engage with the, the loser. This Nicolaitan spirit, I don't want to engage with that. I'm tired of being powerless. I'm tired of not living up and becoming who I'm really meant to be. And the Lord, we just come to you right now. We just say, I want to win, but I want to do it your way. You're a winner. It won't be long and you're going to be here on the earth, Lord. And I, I want to be ready for you. Uh, I want to engage in your your process. I want to just sell out right now. Um, for those of you that have been faltering in your faith and you've been through trials, you've been going through hard times, the Lord just wants to encourage you right now to just engage with the formula that works, the one that He has made, that you're not going to choose to end your life because your life has meaning and purpose and that you're not going to choose to just go satiate yourself on world systems and occultism and various different forms that are trying to engage with your life, but you would engage with Jesus's life-giving spirit. I just pray for you right now that you would make a decision to follow him and, and be the winner that you're meant to be. And we thank you for all that. In your name we pray. Amen.
heavens declare, reflect in the sky. And our eyes have been opened.